Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. All right, very excited for this next interview. Michael Dowling is president and CEO of Northwell Health, New York State's largest healthcare provider. 23 hospitals, more than 13,500 affiliated physicians. And of course, you will have seen Michael Dowling next to Governor Cuomo during the beginning part of this pandemic. He's been his advisor and he's advising him specifically on reopening plans and so on. Michael, the gratitude of the state and country is with you, but as much as you've done, we're only partway through this whole story. Are you preparing for more cases now that New York has started to reopen? And of course, as we see protests continue. Uh, yes, um, uh, the numbers of cases have dramatically dropped, and we're only seeing right now very, very few new cases. Uh, two days ago, across our whole health system, we only had nine new cases. But given the reopening and given all of the protests that uh, recently occurred, um, we are uh, watching it very, very closely to see whether or not there will be an uptick in cases over the next couple of weeks. We have not seen anything yet. But we are, uh, we are observing it very, very closely, as I said, just in case that might happen. And, of course, we're also making plans um, uh, for the potential that you could have an upsurge sometime in the fall during the flu season. So we are, we are prepared. I mean, we've handled the situation up to this point, I think, quite well. Uh, We've learned a lot, and we definitely are prepared for anything that might hit us in the future. We hope it doesn't occur. And we hope that people, uh, you know, comply with the social distancing and wearing masks and do, it, uh, do the right thing for the good of the community. And if they do that, then I think we will be in a pretty good, in a pretty good situation. But we are prepared, going back to your question. Michael, Northwell Health Hospitals have treated more COVID-19 patients than any others in the United States. What I want to ask right. you is, how are your people doing? How, and if you kind of get to look back a little bit now on some of those crazy days and crazy weeks where your hospitals and others in the city and the state were overwhelmed with patients, yeah. as you look back, how is your staff doing? The staff is doing very, very well indeed. And uh, I, I do spend uh, my, myself, I spend a lot of my time out on the floors of the hospital. So I am in the direct contact with staff and uh, in all of our facilities on an ongoing basis. Uh, the morale is very, very high. Um, it is extraordinary how people came together, uh, worked together, supported one another, and stuck with it during the whole period of the, the severe uh, cases that we had. Um, now, we, we do have a lot of support programs for staff, of course, and uh, while during a crisis, everybody's adrenaline is going and they're working very hard, uh, but uh, it is possible that as it slows down now that we're going to see some of the residual results of the, the, the circumstances that we're in. And so we're holding um, you know, meetings on mental health issues, uh, behavioral health issues, stress reduction issues, etc., uh, just to make sure that we can accommodate any needs that the staff have. But overall, um, among the physicians, the nurses, the social workers, etc., it, uh, it, extraordinary resilience and uh, unbelievable positivity, uh, even in the midst of a situation like this, especially since many of them themselves, you know, had sick family members, uh, family members who died. I've come across a number of employees, including yesterday, where a nurse, uh, she actually took care of her brother 
who actually died on the floor of the same hospital that she was practicing in. Um, uh, but overall, uh, quite positive given the circumstances, and it says something extraordinary about healthcare workers. Yeah, it leaves you dumbfounded when you listen to some of those stories, Michael. But yeah. uh, the other part of your problem is that with 23 hospitals under your umbrella, 750 outpatient facilities, right. you've lost a lot of revenue during this time as well. And of course, no one likes to talk about you know profit and yeah. making money during a, as tough a time as yeah. we've had. But you're going to have to look after cancer patients and patients who need you know surgery immediately and so on. Right. How, how do you do that when you've lost one and a half billion dollars in revenue? Well, you focus on the, you focus on you stay positive and you stay upbeat. I mean, we 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 had a circumstance to deal with. Uh, we dealt with it, but not only lost revenue, but we had to spend an awful lot of new monies to just accommodate all of the new cases and re- retrofit many of our hospitals. But that's not the lens by which you look at it during a crisis. You do what you do because it's the right thing to do and you take care of the community. And now that we are coming out of it, at least for this stage of it, hopefully, and it will be the end stage, uh, we are rebuilding back and we're transitioning. We're bringing back business. We're focusing a lot on the cases that um, were deferred that can't be deferred any longer. Otherwise, you can have some other serious negative effects. So uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Two days ago, I mentioned that we had nine uh, COVID patients into our facilities, but we had 720 inpatient admissions on that very same day across our health system. So patients are coming back. Surgery is being done. And we're going to build back up, and I think we're going to build back up um, in a stronger, and we'll be in a stronger position in the future than we were in the past because we learned some lessons. We have to rethink our organization right now, become more productive, become more consumer-focused, become leaner, um, and, uh, and, and use technology an awful lot more. There are innumerable lessons that we learned here. And, of course, we did get some support from the federal government. So when I look forward a year from now, we will come out of this okay. Um, you know, circumstances yeah, I, 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 I throw you, you know, put you into a negative circumstance for a while, uh, but uh, you look forward and you're going to come out of it healthy, strong, and better, I believe. Uh, sometimes, you know, going through a bad experience uh, wakens you up and gives you a new perspective, gets you to think about what's important and how to build your organization for the future. So I'm optimistic. Um, uh, and you have to be optimistic because it also is in a leadership in any organization should be optimistic at a time like this because that's the message that you send to your staff as well. So I'm so, positive. Absolutely. Michael, just about 30 seconds left. How about some smaller market hospitals? I've seen some news reporting that, boy, a lot of those uh, types of facilities are really going to have a hard time staying afloat. What is, what, what's your understanding there? Yeah, smaller hospitals that are standalone hospitals that are not part of the larger system that don't have some of the you know capabilities that places like us have, or we'll have a much more difficult circumstance. Uh, you will have some places across the country, my guess, that will close. Uh, you will have some places that will, con- will, will ally, uh, create alliances with other large entities. But there's going to be a shift and a change in healthcare now, and I think some of that is for the good. Uh, some of the things we were always doing one way, we will now do a different way, especially the use of telemedicine and telehealth, etc. So, yes, um, you'll see some positives coming out of this, but like everything else that happens in circumstances like this, you're going to see some negatives as well. 
Michael Dowling, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate hearing your perspective from really ground zero in the very front lines of dealing with this COVID-19. And, you know, our, our thanks to you and to all the staff uh, of your hospitals. Michael Dowling, President and Chief Executive Officer of Northwell Health, uh, joining us. And just some extraordinary commentary, uh, Vani. You know, think about that. No hospital system in the country handled more COVID-19 cases than Northwell. Yeah, and saved the state and the rest of the country from, you know, a lot of tragedy as well. But I'm sure that one anecdote he told, he probably has hundreds more. And you wonder what it's like to lead an organization like that at a time like this. It is time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined now by opinion columnist Sarah Holzak. Sarah, thank you for joining a great opinion piece today on retail. We've known for some time that retail will be challenged, but there are more challenges facing retail as the protests got underway and each of the brands were called out to have a response to what was going on in the environment. So where do we stand now with retail? What are CEOs telling you? Yeah, I think uh, the key thing that I've been thinking about is that the clothing category in particular is in dire straits right now. Um, It's just a corner of retail that was more overstored than any other. And already so many of the brands in that space were in a beleaguered position before the onset of the pandemic and the recession. The likes of Victoria's Secret, Banana Republic, Gap, Chico's, Express. These are brands that for years had been struggling to connect with customers based on their fashion alone. And now when you add these other uh, problems on top of it, it's going to be a very, very dark time uh, in this segment of retail for months and perhaps years to come. So, Sarah, as we think about the clothing aspect of retail, again, as you mentioned, there's a lot of the fashion aspect to it. How has kind of the pandemic and changing consumer behaviors about how they actually purchase clothing, how has that changed? Are people more comfortable spending on fairly moderate to big ticket items strictly online? Yes. So I think that what this has done has basically meant uh, years worth of online adoption was compressed into a matter of months. Um, And so people are getting more comfortable purchasing clothing online. I've seen uh, surveys that show uh, people plan to keep buying clothing online at the rates that they've begun to now uh, during this time of lockdowns. And that creates a unique challenge for the clothing segment that's not faced elsewhere. And that's because returns of online purchases in this segment tend to be extremely high. We all probably know this from personal experience. You buy multiple sizes of a given pair of pants or multiple colors. um, And having to foot the bill for return shipping and restocking um, is a really tricky profitability problem for these clothing retailers that just simply is not faced by retailers of electronics, toys, groceries, that kind of thing. So one of the reasons that people still do go into brick and mortar stores is to avoid having to do that, Sarah, to try on different sizes and to just try on something so they won't have to send it back. How will stores change their fitting room policies post-pandemic? Yeah, so we're seeing a number of different approaches on this front. Kohl's and TJ Maxx, for example, have their fitting rooms closed altogether right now. Uh, Nordstrom is taking an approach where it has only a limited number of them open and they're cleaning each fitting room in between each patron. Um, And again, you can see how this just compounds the problem. Uh, Fitting rooms are a key reason that you go to do brick and mortar shopping in the first place uh, for clothing stores. And when that option is not available to you or when it's suddenly become a lot clunkier, uh, you can see how that might keep people away or keep people from purchasing as many things as they might have if they were able to try them on. 
So, Sarah, one of the things that we've heard about within retail, generally speaking, is this omni-channel approach to retailing, you know, the bricks and mortar plus the online being able to, you know, maybe pick up something that you ordered online. Is that still seen as the best strategy for a lot of these retail segments? So I think uh, curbside pickup is getting a huge boost in the grocery category right now. And I think a lot of people are trying that for the first time. And retailers like Walmart and Target have long said that these services have extraordinarily high net promoter scores. That once people, once they can get people to try them, uh, they really do stick with them and recommend them to other shoppers. So this moment of trial for curbside pickup in the grocery space in particular, uh, I think is going to be sticky and powerful. Uh, these experiments that, say, a Bloomingdale's is doing with curbside pickup, I'm not sure how enduring that's going to be uh, after the pandemic uh, because, again, this seems like a situation where either you'd want to go to the store, try the clothes on, have that sort of uh, social experiential moment or you'd want to shop online and I don't think curbside will be uh, have lasting impact there. Sarah, obviously, you know, a big story is rent and Gap is suing. It doesn't want to pay rent and so on. What are people like NPD Group and so on saying about who will end up on the hook for rents? Yeah, it's a tricky question, and uh, I think it rem- everyone's watching that particular lawsuit you mentioned very closely uh, to see how it shakes out. Um, I think it's interesting to note that different retailers will have different advantages that they can bring to these lease negotiations. If you're someone who's a key traffic driver to a shopping center, so Apple, for example, uh, tends to drive a lot of foot traffic to a mall, or if you're a grocery store, which has been open this whole time and is a basics retailer, you have a lot of leverage in these negotiations. Uh, with the mall operators. If you're one of these leaguer clothing stores we were talking about earlier, a Victoria's Secret and Express, uh, you know, Victoria's Secret is closing a quarter of its North American fleet. That does not really put you on good footing to be able to uh, renegotiate better terms for your leases. And so I think that is definitely going to play a role in who the ultimate survivors are uh, after all of this tumult. Sarah Halsak, thank you so much for joining us. We're always glad to get your perspective on all things retail. She's a retail columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read more of Sarah's work and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion and on the terminal by typing O-P-I-N-Go. So, Vani, I think it's just more tough times for uh, the retail uh, retailers out there. It's going to be really tough coming back from this pandemic. Right. I mean, there were so many of them on the brink of bankruptcy yeah. anyway. If you listen to somebody like uh, Howard Davidovitz or whatever, he will tell you that, you know, they should have been bankrupt a long time ago, some of them. And obviously, this pivot to online, as you said, Paul, is just going to accelerate and has been accelerating in the pandemic. So obviously, as we saw online shopping boosted massively, it doesn't mean that the brick and mortar stores will be able to stick around. And we are back. Looking forward to our chat with the illustrious David Kotak next. David joins us from Cumberland Advisors, where he's the chief investment officer, chairman, and of course, just a friend of the show for decades, I would have to say at this point. David, you've seen many market sell-offs. David, is this a sell-off based on panic, based on fundamentals, based on what Fed Chair Powell said yesterday or all of the above? Oh, Vani, thank you very much, Mm -hmm. and nice to be with you and Paul. Uh, All of the above in an extraordinary environment with a VIX, which is an indicator of volatility and risk that's contemporaneous with the markets that has been at such a high level, reflecting 
that volatility. You think about what we've done in three months. We went from 3,300 on the S&P to 2,100, back to 3,200, and now we're somewhere around 3,100, and in a what looks like a very free fall temporarily. It's a wild time. So we're it's explainable by what you just outlined, and there will be more of it, I'm afraid to say. So, David, we got another uh, very difficult uh, jobless claims number today. We had Fed Chairman Powell yesterday calling out that a rebound in this economy will take uh, longer than perhaps uh, people anticipated. As you look across the credit spectrum, are you starting to see significant credit quality problems that are going to be an issue for investors going forward? Well, we worry about the credit problems, Paul. We have seen, we saw the credit spreads blow out at the end of March. And then the Fed's activities started to narrow them. And they narrowed wherever the markets believed the Fed would provide market function support. And not only functioning, but liquidity to continuously function. So there is confidence restored in those credit spreads. In other credit spreads, much less so. So there's a sort of a division, I think, in the market. Uh, I would draw the line at what was previously investment grade of any type. The Fed is intent on trying to keep that a functioning market. If it was below, if it was a junk credit, and a junk credit last fall, the Fed is not going to go bail it out, but they do want market functionality. And I believe that's how you divide the credit analysis in a general thematic way. David, square off for me the idea that this will be the shortest recession of all time with the data that we're seeing and what the Fed chair said yesterday about unemployment still being just below 10% by the end of the year and FOMC members not being able to forecast an interest rate increase until at least 2022. Well, uh, I can understand what Jay Powell uh, tried to convey because he's dealing with so many unknowns like how long the virus, how much damage does it do, when do we have curated treatments so people have safety if they get sick, and when do we get a vaccine in mass distribution. We don't know. Everything's being worked on. Everybody's hopeful, but we have no idea as to time. So he has to give himself a time cushion, and that would probably be a safe two years. The second thing he has to do is say we don't know how deep and how much the damage will be. We're trying to buffer the damage. We're trying to bridge across the valley, and we cannot know how wide the valley is. And that was the nature of his message. I think the Fed and the PAL are doing a terrific job confronting something that is a once in a hundred year type of an event. So I believe they were candid. They said what they did. They said, take this very seriously. Where markets were on this euphoric rise based upon opening up uh, is an excess market swing to excess in both directions. And they did it over the last period of time. And now they're correcting the excess. If the sell-off gets to the point where we think it is, it will present an entry opportunity again. Because in the end of this, there is recovery. And after the recovery, there's a reconfiguration of economics. People forget, if I have another minute, Vani and Paul, people forget 
there's a survivor bias underway here. Look at the S&P 500 index, for example. Macy's used to be in it. It's not in it anymore. It's still a 500 index, but it's reconfigured by definition to capture and adjust for the changes. So, David, given that time frame that Chairman Powell suggested uh, yesterday, have a perhaps a two-year kind of time frame here for trying to get to the other side here. How how are you positioning your portfolio uh, right now, given that uh, again this may be a little bit longer uh, to recover? Well, the the first is today in the stock portfolio we have a cash reserve. We have had it for a while. Uh, we will deploy it and reduce it on entries that appear inviting, and we will raise it if markets go to excess. Uh, our biggest overweight in the United States and the U.S. portfolio is the healthcare sector. We think when this is over, Paul, the healthcare sector in the United States will amount to 20% of the GDP of the country. That will be an all-time record high. American healthcare country companies in partnership with others around the world are doing a stellar job in cooperatively developing what the tools will be to deal with the pandemic. It's a, it, so our biggest overweight is there. We're worried about the geopolitics of the world, so we have an overweight in the defense sector. I wish it weren't so. And we have a position which I really like because I think some changes are going to happen, and that's in water, wind, and solar. We are overweight that package. We think there's going to be some reaction around the world. I wish there would be more to the change that's necessary to address climate change. That's a hopeful estimate, but we've bet some money on it happening. David Kotak, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate your thoughts and commentary and your experience, the benefit of your experience. David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors, uh, joining us uh, once again with his sage advice. And Vani, looking at the markets here, uh, you know, continued weakness here. I think it's uh, continuing the third day. We've seen the sell-off here. We're now uh, 4.2% off on the Dow. Uh, So, again, the market reacting to a confluence of events uh, from the last several days. Yeah, and I mean, let's not overplay it right now because we had actually been at records before this, which was really sort of the stunning thing. But still, for the year now, the Dow is down about 10% based on today's numbers included. Well, we certainly have equity markets trading off substantially today. The question is simply, is this something that is to be expected given the huge rebound we've had off the bottoms or is it suggesting something more to get some color? We welcome Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business. So, Barry, what say you about this market today? Yeah, this is uh, kind of fascinating when you look at um, the after-the-fact explanation, and, and we love to do that. We love to create a narrative about that. You, you had Fed Chairman Powell's comments about keeping rates low until 2022, and I think he threw a little bit of cold water on the um, V-shaped recovery uh, expectations in the economy. This is going to be a long, slow recovery, especially in the uh, labor market. Uh, but also... Given all the reopenings of various states that we've seen over the past two weeks, the spike in new infections is definitely um, startling people. It probably shouldn't, but uh, if you back out New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Massachusetts and look at the 
rest of the country that seems to have ramped up infection rates later than the Northeast, we are not doing a great job here. We're not doing a great job on flattening the curve elsewhere or testing and contact tracing. And so we may see a reopening that stumbles and we go right back down to lockdown if this gets much worse. And I think the markets are uh, looking at that as well. What, Barry, markets haven't really cared, though, about what good or bad of a job we're doing on the pandemic. They only care if businesses are open and they haven't seemed to be even worried about demand if businesses do open until literally today. Are you saying that suddenly markets change their mind about that? Um, you know, I, I don't think it's that the markets did not care about the lockdown or, or, or about how well we're doing. I think they were looking over the valley of the shutdown towards a treatment, a vaccine, contact tracing. Uh, I think they were very optimistic uh, about our ability to manage this competently and allow, if you look at, at Singapore or South Korea, you look at some of the other countries that have handled the shutdown and reopening well, the expectations were, hey, hopefully we can do at least as well as that. And the early data that we're really just seeing, remember, you're always on a week to two week delay, and today is the 11th. So a lot of states that opened on the 1st, we're just starting to see infection rates and hospitalization rates increase now. And over the next few days, we're really going to find out what the opening did. I think this is new data that the market is incorporating and saying, hey, we are far less competent than other countries are in managing this. And there will be an economic price to pay if we don't do this right. Well, we have Secretary Mnuchin coming out suggesting that or saying that uh, there will not be another, I guess, nationwide lockdown uh, if the uh, virus makes a return. So there's kind of a dueling narrative there. Barry, it's interesting, you know, fiscal stimulus has kind of gone into the back burner a little bit. There seems to be a lack of agreement between the Democrats and the Republicans about the next round of stimulus. Is that something you think the market should be paying attention to, perhaps a little bit more? So, so let me address both of those issues, Mnuchin and the stimulus, in, in one answer. Um, whether or not there's a national lockdown or not is, has become completely irrelevant because of the total um, lack of leadership on a, on a national basis in this. It has fallen to the individual states, and we are now running 50 experiments. What, what happens in Wyoming is different than California and Florida and Massachusetts and New York, et cetera. So if, uh, if the Treasury Secretary is focused on a national lockdown question, he's missing what's actually taking place where boots are on the ground, what's actually happening state by state. And the answer to your question about um, another round of stimulus Depends on how bad the sell-off gets. I don't mean today. I mean over the next couple of months. Think back to September and October 2008 when we first uh, introduced some form of, of um, national uh, rescue plan for the great financial crisis. Uh, Congress said no, and then the Dow had its worst week in decades. And by uh, that Monday, no, by Friday became yes. Let this market sell off another 10 20%, that's good for a trillion dollars. Let it sell down another 30% from here, and you'll see another two and a half, three trillion dollars. Congress and the president react to a variety of signals. 
Nothing scares the bejesus out of people like seeing the market lose a third of its value in a month or two. That motivates them. Barry, we have to leave it there already. I did want to ask you about the Federal Reserve Chairman and concerns about some kind of frothiness here, but we're going to have to wait for the next time. And anyway, we're seeing less frothiness today. That is Barry Rittles of Rittles Wealth Management. And of course, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, some of his latest columns include uh, talking about market panic selling and other behavioral aspects to this market performance. Speaking of which, we are down 3.75% on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P down 3.2%. And the Nasdaq is the winner today, Paul, but it is still down (laughs) 2.2%. Yeah, yeah, significant layoff, uh, sell-off here, and as Barry was suggesting, some combination of the Fed chairman's uh, comments yesterday about the longer-term trends for the economy, plus uh, some, uh, uh, you know, g- growing news and a growing awareness of perhaps a second wave in certain regions of the country. So the market's kind of digesting that uh, new news, and we'll certainly follow it up throughout the remainder of the day. Yeah, I mean, if we're looking at a, an unemployment rate of just below 10% at the end of the year, that is not a pretty picture. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.